Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Overcoming unwanted pornography use is a big accomplishment. It's not an easy thing to do. It is possible, and people do it all the time. But sometimes I think that t- describing it as overcoming pornography is some ways a misunderstanding of really what the process is. Overcoming the pornography is a part of the process. The longer-term recovery efforts are really less about pornography and more about emotions and connection. My guest today is Sathya Sam. And he is an author. The book is called The Last Relapse. And he also is a creator of a program called Deep Clean. And he does a lot of work to help men overcome unwanted pornography use, but he also helps people go deeper and do much more work around their emotions and relationships and try and help them deal with all the roots, if you will, of that problem. And so I I invited him on the show today to talk about some of the places where we get stuck in trying to overcome unwanted sexual behaviors and going beyond just the behaviors. Before we jump into the interview, let me introduce you to Sathya so you can know a little bit about his work. His name is Sathya Sam, and he's a coach and a speaker that helps men live with confidence and integrity. A recovered addict himself, he's the creator of Deep Clean, a research-based and Bible-backed system for overcoming pornography addiction. Deep Clean has helped everyone from college students to medical doctors regain control of their lives and walk in greater levels of freedom. He's married to his lovely wife, Shaloma, and based out of Toronto, Canada. Sathya is also the author of a book called The Last Relapse and has a podcast called Unleashing the Man Within. It's a real honor to have Sathya on the podcast today. I love talking to him and he's got such great insights and lots of hard-won wisdom that he's done in his own recovery work and also helping so many men around the world overcome pornography. So let's jump into my interview now with Sathya Sam. Well, welcome to the podcast, Athea. Thanks so much for making time for us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I love talking about this stuff with uh, others that are doing work in the same space around helping people get underneath the, just the behaviors. You know, a lot of the times there's so much emphasis on stopping a behavior with pornography or other un- unwanted sexual behaviors. And there could be so much emphasis on getting kind of to that finish line that a lot of people sort of artificially you know, believe or hope that they're done. And to me, that's almost like that's when the real work begins, right? Yeah. I think, I mean, I know for me, like I was, I had an addiction for about 15 years and probably about five of those years was where I was earnestly trying to recover. And Uh the first couple of years, that's all I did, Jeff. You know, like it was all just behavior modification, just slapping on an internet filter, trying to muster up willpower, hoping that if I read the Bible more or prayed more that, you know, it would just kind of take care of it. And, uh, 
yeah, that's a really frustrating cycle to be in. So I, I totally agree. You got to get a little <laughs> bit deeper than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's all coming from a really a really earnest, good place for most of the people that I've worked with over the years. They're, yeah. they're very sincere, very determined, and that's a very measurable finish line. You know, it's the behavior that brought them in to my office or, or brought, you know, introduced them to my work. And naturally, they're going to want to extinguish that. And so in, in your experience as well, and, and the, the people that you've helped over the years, and in your own recovery journey, why isn't that enough? Like, tell me what you've seen and experienced with that. Why isn't just stopping the behavior going to get it done? Yeah, I kind of liken it to when I was 16 years old, my, my parents had me cut the grass. That was one of my responsibilities. And my parents had a really nice property, uh, big backyard. So usually a couple hours of work just to kind of get that thing cut down. And there was one particular area, I still remember it. It didn't have a lot of grass growing, just, just a bunch of weeds and kind of that dried out dirt. And I knew that in theory, if I really wanted to get rid of those weeds, I would probably have to, you know, put on some gloves and actually uproot them properly. But it was so much easier to just run over them with a lawnmower, you know, and as a teenager, <laughs> especially, it was like, I just didn't have the light of day to like spend the energy to do this properly. So I would just run them over. And, you know, when I finished, like after a couple hours had passed and I would look over from the back deck, the lawn looked great. You know, everything looked clean. You almost couldn't tell the difference between even the area where the weeds were growing versus the grass because everything was cut down to the same level. But as we know, it's only a couple of days until those weeds are growing back, thicker, pricklier than before. And you've actually done yourself no favors. Really, all you did was squash an issue. But because you didn't actually address the roots, they're just going to grow back. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people, when they do try behavior modification, it doesn't work. It's the equivalent of just cutting down a weed at the surface level rather than figuring out the cause of it and the underlying root system that's giving rise to it in the first place. So I think the reason that's so uncomfortable is because it's more work. Like, let's not kid ourselves. It's easier to yeah. run over the weed with a lawnmower and it's easier to just slap a filter on your computer and say, yeah, I think I'm going to really kick this thing. But I think for guys who are serious about getting free and maybe have dealt with their share of pain and they've paid a price for their addiction, either relationally, personally, vocationally, financially, spiritually, whatever it may be, that's what at least motivated me to get a bit deeper and get underneath the surface. I actually had a, a mentor who said, hey, just so you know, marriage doesn't fix your problems. You know, I was single at the time and I, I honestly kind of bought into the lie that once I get married, I'll be having sex on a regular basis. I'm not going to have any of these issues with pornography because my needs will be getting met that way. And he was like, no, 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 no. Like marriage is a magnifier. Whatever problem you have before you tie the knot is going to be worse on the other side. And that was a huge driving force for me to be like, okay, I, I guess maybe I do actually need to do the deeper work. This is a much more serious issue. And I think for the, the clients that I work with, they're in a similar position where they've been confronted with the reality of their situation, how bad it really is. And they're realizing that behavior modification isn't doing the trick. And uh, I think that's usually when people are, are willing to go a little bit deeper underneath the surface. Yeah, it really is kind of a, really a self-confronting kind of thing. Cause it's like, it is a crossroads. It's a decision point because there have been so many, in many cases, years of getting instant results, of getting instant relief, of getting, you know, like you said, just leveling the weeds in terms of dealing with your unwanted emotions or stress or other things that maybe drove you to seek out pornography or seek out some sort of quick mood change. And so a lot of guys approach recovery the same way that they've approached their life, which is yeah. this shouldn't really take a ton of effort. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I agree that marriage is a magnifier because it it creates a lot more work in terms of, you know, working with someone else, making space for someone, a lot of personal sacrifice, a lot of things like that. And of course, and then it just, you know, holds up a huge mirror to our own personal issues. I mean, we all think we're pretty easy to live with until we get married, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think you realize how flawed you are until you have another person in your space like that. It's very true. Yeah. yeah, honey, I'm so chill. I'm just such an easygoing guy. Right? Yeah, until you move, move in with me, and then. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. How long have you been married, Jeff? My goodness, it's going to be 26 years this year. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. So you're, I'm, I'm just two and a half years. So I'm probably learning all the things that you're laughing about right now. But yes, <laughs> very much so. Yeah. But, but don't you see that as well? That that a lot of times it's it's really a like you said, like yeah, let's be honest, like it's just work, and so a lot of us just naturally want to take the shortcut. But there's yeah. been a lot of brain and body training for years of bypassing the work. Yeah. Just and emotional I, work. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good point is like, if you think about how long people have been watching porn by the time they're trying to get help. For me, I got exposed to porn when I was 11 years old. So here I am as a 22, 23, 24, 25 year old male yeah. trying, to, trying to reverse this habit that's existed in my life for 10 years. And you're right. The thinking patterns, it's not just the conscious thoughts. It's the subconscious patterns. It's the body's response, the body just being accustomed to getting this release on a regular basis, getting the dopamine hits on a regular basis, all of those things. That takes a lot of time to reverse and usually a couple of tries. Like I always have guys, they get so discouraged because they'll go, you know, three weeks, the first three weeks in the program, they hit the ground running, they got all this momentum going. And then, you know, they have a relapse and they're like, oh man, I, I feel so bad. I'm so disappointed. Da, 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 da. And it's like, you went three weeks, like you've been watching this thing a couple times a week and you went three weeks. That is amazing. That's a huge adjustment for your body. It's okay that you had a relapse. It's better that you probably have a couple along the way than trying to just white knuckle this thing for six months and then to have like a hard binge purge kind of thing take place all over again. So I I think that's a really important part of it. That conditioning takes time to reverse. And then of course it takes time for that new conditioning. But the good thing is that your body is adaptable. Your brain is plastic. And so they're there are ways for you to obviously change this. It just, yeah, it's a process. And sometimes our instant gratification centric kind of world would have us believe otherwise. So yes, totally agree with that. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's that way with people that haven't been addicted to anything. Like we just get results quickly with almost anything these days. I mean, yeah. everything from our groceries now to whatever, <laughs> like we can bypass so many of the, what used to be, you know, just life now are viewed as inconveniences. And so recovery is, you know, from that standpoint is pretty inconvenient when compared to just bypassing it with porn or other things like that. It's, we have to go out of our way for sure. Put the gloves on and do the work, dig the weeds. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And I I do think like, I mean, to give people credit, because I think it's not that we don't want to do the hard work or or want to, it's not that we're trying to avoid all that, but I think we'll always take the the path of least resistance, the most convenient. And I think if we don't, if we don't have success there, I think people are actually willing to go underneath the surface. They just have to know that their efforts are going to be worth their while. And I think oh, that's, why, that's why the so work true. you're doing is so important. Like the, the trust building boot camp you have, I think everybody should be signing up for that. Because when you have somebody who's, who's actually showing you, hey, you don't have to go into this like complicated root system and figure it out for yourself. I've been there. I've done the work. Here are the steps that I'm going to walk you through. I think that's super powerful. And I know for me, that's what changed everything. Because I was like, hey, if, you're, if there's somebody out there who's going to guide me, I can be confident in what they're guiding me through. I think that's a very different story than like, yeah, I got to put my garden gloves on and I don't know how much work this thing's really going to be. 
<laughs> right. Right. And if they'll even, you know, if I'm even hitting the right places or, I mean, there's, yeah, yeah I, I agree. A roadmap is huge. And, and one thing that we, I, I wanted to, to dig into a little bit more, speaking of digging in, you know, some of these underlying things, some of these root systems are the, the deeper weeds for guys that are struggling with pornography and women as well, of course, don't want to leave them out is this concept of shame and really sort of the, the view of self, the deep, mm. you know, internal feelings that, that really get targeted, get hit pretty deeply when, you know, when you're, when you're really out of congruence with your own values, when you're living in a way that you're ashamed of or don't want other people to see, it can really mess with your identity. But a lot of people don't know how to get to this or how to change it or what to do with it. Oh. Would you say that shame is one of the biggest kind of weeds or roots, if you say, I guess, if, if you will, with, uh, with overcoming long-term pornography issues? Yeah, I would. I, I really would. And I'm, I'm very grateful. We were talking about this before you hit record about people like Brené Brown that have obviously popularized some of these concepts. Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for it because I think shame is often reduced to this thing of like, oh, something's wrong with me. I don't want to be found out. Totally true. That is obviously one side of shame. But the other side of shame is the fear of disconnection if I am found out. It's that, that mm. fear of being rejected or losing that, that sense of connection with the person. And one of my mentors, uh, when I was getting my education, he said that abandonment is the root of all roots. That was his mm. language. That we are that. often so, we're such social creatures and connection is such a driving force in our lives that anything that risks us being abandoned, we will fight tooth and nail against. And yeah. I think where shame comes into play, we talk about in our program about the shame fear control cycle. Shame is this thing of there's something wrong with me and that creates a fear that I will be found out. And if you find out what's wrong with me, you'll reject me. I'll be abandoned. Mm -hmm. A very big right. driving force. And the, the other part of that is then the control component, which is that people are driven to control the situation we like to control how we're presented towards people and everything else so that our shame, the thing that we're shameful about doesn't get exposed. And I right. think, I know for me, when I was addicted, like the classic example is after I would watch, this was on the family computer. This is a little bit back in the day. So I would, of course, delete all my browser history after. So it's the classic thing of like, I've done the shameful thing. I feel bad about myself for watching porn. I'm afraid of being found out. You know, I'm afraid that whoever uses the computer next is going to see my history. So I take control of the situation. And I delete the browser history so that there's no trace so that nobody can see how bad I am. Therefore, I will never be rejected or perceived differently by my family and whatever else. And I think these dynamics are constantly at play when porn addiction is in somebody's life. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's not just feeling bad about myself. There's, there's a whole action tendency. There's a whole sequence of behaviors that really follow that up to manage it because it's so painful. In some ways, we're almost like you said, defenseless against it. And so we come up with all these maladaptive ways of trying to manage it and cope with it because it's so punishing to feel like you're going to be alone. I agree. Abandonment yeah. and, and isolation, whether we consciously realize it or not, are the things we're constantly guarding against and, and organizing our life around. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I know um, what we've witnessed, probably the two, two of the most effective methods I think that are helping people really around the world get free of pornography. This, is, this has been shown in studies as well, is acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, mm -hmm. and healing from attachments, like di uh, disorganized attachments or dysfunctional yep. attachments. And when you think about that, it actually makes perfect sense that, of course, if you start to have compassion towards yourself, start to realize how lovable and how worthy of love you really are. And if you start to learn to attach in a, in a healthy and a meaningful way, it's amazing how many of the other kind of symptomatic issues 
start to take care of themselves, porn, porn addiction and, and that included. And so I, th- I think that's a very important part of the shame conversation. Personally, in my framework and in, in, in my book, The Last Relapse, we actually expand this to what we call the triple threat. So we do talk about shame, but we also talk about guilt, which I think are, are discussed frequently in tandem. Shame uh-huh. is that I am bad. Guilt is that I've done something bad. And there's a distinction there. But our third component, which I hope you don't mind me mentioning, Jeff, is regret. That's kind of the third part of the triple threat. And we find that when guys are able to work through all three of these dynamics, their processing or their uprooting is a lot more effective. So I, I like to kind of make sure that we talk about shame, but always in the context of the triple threat. I think it's just helpful for people. Yeah, I love that. No, I, I'm glad that you mentioned and expand on that because I think the more we can understand what's happening in relation to shame and how it just like, again, using root systems, right? Like it just grows out and, and it can, can strangle so many other areas. So walk me through what, you know, when you guys talk about it, I'd love to have a bigger discussion on this, sure. on the shame, the guilt and the, and, and the regret. I mean, again, I, I think we all use these words in our lives here and there, but in terms of really operationalizing what these mean in the context of a recovery process, can you say more about them? Yeah, absolutely. So, I I mean, obviously we talked about shame already. Shame is that I am bad or I am wrong. Something's wrong with me. And it's that fear of detachment, fear of abandonment that really drives a lot of it. Guilt is that I've done something bad. So I think shame is often very identity centric, which is why it's so problematic. Guilt has a lot more to do with somebody's behavior. And I personally believe that that guilt is, is generally, I would say, not a great thing. It usually doesn't really help. But there are instances where guilt can be uh, useful. And I would say it's guilt in the context of compassion is what I call conviction. And I think conviction can actually be really helpful because the reality is if we squashed guilt altogether, then that wouldn't do us any favors for watching pornography. Like the part of you that feels guilty about watching porn, that actually shows you have a conscience. You know what I mean? Like it shows you have some moral convictions here. And that's actually a really good thing. But we want to make sure that we're going about this the right way because Guilting somebody into any kind of behavioral change, whether it's positive or negative, is a huge disservice. We do not want to be guilted into something. We want to have a conviction about it. And I think the only way that it really is experienced is in the context of compassion. The third element of this is regret. And this is where I spend a lot of time discussing because I don't think people talk about it a lot, but it really works in conjunction with the other two. Our working definition of regret is that it is looking at your past without compassion. So you and I both know, Jeff, like we're the products of our past, all of the decisions, all of the belief systems, all the family systems, the environment, the societies, cultures we grew up in, all of it has created or formed the people that we are right now in this moment. And I'm not trying to say we don't need to go back through our past. It's a fundamental part of recovery. What we were observing with our clients is that they were so remorseful and even ashamed about their past that it was like, oh, I'm just such a terrible person. It basically just reinforced the shame because they were looking at their past without that compassionate lens. So Mm. we really encourage people, hey, of course you have to go through your past, but our principle is that you only look at your past long enough to learn. Once you start wallowing, once you feel like more depressed, that's when we say, okay, let's just pump the brakes on this because maybe we've sort of lost our angle here. Maybe we've lost why we were looking at it, which was to learn And it was meant to be done with the lens of compassion. And so I think for somebody who's looking to recover, who maybe you have trauma in your past, or you know you just have um, childhood wounds or whatever it might be, parts of your past that need to heal, heal them. Absolutely. And if you're concerned that you're going to be so caught up in that, or you're going to be stuck in your past forever, I can assure you that's not the case at all. 
Rather, we're just going to look at it through a lens of compassion. We're going to go in with the intent to learn. And I think with those sort of cornerstones guiding our process as we work through the parts of our past, we can really effectively heal, grow, and become stronger people that are eventually able to make good decisions and are not entangled by the baggage and the weight of you know previous decisions that we might feel remorseful about. So I think that's how these three things all work together in tandem or in conjunction with each other rather. Yeah, I love that. I When I think of regret, I think of regret as like, it's sort of like the dashboard light that goes on that says, your guilt is now overloaded and it's starting to go into shame. It's starting to go mm. into, it's like crossed over from remorse into, like you said, self-judgment, criticism, stuff that really isn't productive at all. But. And might even, might even like leave us feeling like we're getting something done or we're really accountable now, right? Because I'm really beating myself up. Yeah. And, and I, just, I just don't think it has any purpose at all. It's, yeah. But in some ways, I think that can be a good marker, right? Regret's a good marker that you're saturated with too much shame. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's also probably an indicator or it might be exposing areas where you haven't fully loved yourself. Because mm-hmm. if, if we go, go back to the shame conversation, like a huge part of recovering or, or overcoming shame is really just seeing your value, like seeing your intrinsic yeah. self-worth. And that obviously takes time to develop. And I think apart from a compassionate lens, whether you're looking at your past, present, or your future, regret can often really yeah, it can work against that agenda. And I think it can stop you from really, truly just loving yourself the way you were designed to. Mm, yeah, I love that. And I, I don't know, I, I think that looking back at our mistakes, understanding them, kind of looking at them through the lens of compassion actually allows us to learn from them better than just being so flooded with all the emotion and all the shame and all the regret, all that, all that deep sense of like, what was wrong with me? It's almost like we're beating ourselves up mm. for stuff that, you know, we should have known better, things like that. And there's so much unhelpful dialogue in that process when we're in deep regret that we, I don't know that you can actually learn anything from those conversations or those reflections at all. I mean, I don't, right. It's more just what I learn is that I'm a big loser. That's really all you learn. Yeah. Yeah. It just reinforces is, all of the damaging beliefs that got you there in the first yeah, place. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that. So to be able to walk through compassionately through the lessons and through the experiences and the mistakes I mean, one, it is possible, yeah. but it's not possible if, if you're just flooded with so much pain. I mean, th- th- there's a fine line, right? Like we should, like you said, there should be some guilt. There should be a sense of I've crossed lines. I've betrayed others. I've betrayed myself. I've betrayed God. Like I've, I've crossed over and, and I'm out of alignment with my deepest values. And that yeah. should cause some pain, like we said. Yeah. Where's that line? Like, where do you feel like it starts to cross over into becoming unhelpful? Where... I think some people might wonder, like, and I think even a lot of betrayed partners might wonder, you know, mm-hmm. how bad should he feel, right? I mean, he really ruined my life, our family, et cetera, whatever. You know, how much pain is too much pain when it stops becoming productive? <laughs> and maybe that's an impossible question to answer because everybody's different, but I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a great question. And I think it is unique to the invi- the individual I think you're always you're always measuring it by the emotional byproduct of your process. And this is really true for anything in recovery. Like if your recovery process is inducing or reinforcing shame or guilt, then I have reason to question that process altogether. Because what should be happening as you go through yeah. is you're loving yourself more, you're experiencing more joy in life. These are really like the byproducts that you've actually gone through a legitimate inner transformation. And of course, Mm -hmm. like it's the byproduct of hard work. I think 
the reality is pain is probably one of the greatest driving forces for change in our life. And that just goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, just choosing or preferring least resistance, choosing instant gratification, all those kinds of things. But when you're confronted with the pain of, my gosh, like one of the clients I'm working with right now, he's lost his family and like his wife and his five kids over his porn addiction. I'm sure you see this all the time, Jeff, like we're talking about high stakes here. And that's what it unfortunately took for him to realize, okay, I guess I need to make a change in my life. You can't imagine the level of guilt and the level of shame and pain that guy is feeling. So I don't think he needs to experience more of it at that point. I think we need to start figuring out what caused this. And we know, you and I know that systemically, it probably has to do with unmet needs, emotional deficiencies, replaying traumas from earlier parts of his life if they're there, and something to do with the way he's perceiving himself that is flawed and needs some repair. And I think that really should be more the focus of recovery. If we just keep focusing on how terrible you are, then how are we ever going to really make any progress? All we're going to do is just reinforce the things that caused the pain and, and the addiction. So I think for somebody recovering, you're probably always going to be conscious of the pain you caused, of the gravity of your decisions. And I don't think it's really my job to further those things. Those are there. My job is to really help somebody realize their true value, how great they are, and to help them become the person that God's created them to be so that they can then show up in their marriage and their family and everything else in a way that's actually meaningful and impactful. And I will just say really quick to the person who has, is on the other side, you've been betrayed, you're experiencing some trauma from that. I'm not saying that if your partner becomes, does become this great person, they learn to love themselves. I'm not suggesting that like you have to suddenly just be okay with who they are and everything else. There, there's a recovery process that takes place obviously on that side. And I don't think I don't think we should negate any of that either. I just think for somebody to really recover, they will eventually have to hurdle that guilt and hurdle that pain and reach a place where they can forgive themselves. They can look themselves in the mirror and love what they see. And I think that's really when true recovery takes place. I appreciate that. I think that that's an important, I guess, qualifier element here, because I think I I see this all the time in in my work as well, which is a guy is, um, in most of the case, I work with men who are trying to overcome pornography, other sexual acting out behaviors. And they get to this place where they're really starting to feel clear about who they are and are taking deep ownership for what they've done. And they realize that they're not this horrible person. They're separating themselves from the addictive behaviors. They're starting to create more separation, more distance. And it almost can trigger a lot of fear in their betrayed partner that somehow he's going to forget her pain, that he's going to, you know, that if, if I'm a good guy now, she can never bring up her pain or talk about how hard it's been without somehow accusing him or judging him or putting him back in the hole. Mm. And in my experience, there's two processes going on there. There's him holding anchored to the truth of who he is and that he's not his mistakes and that he can learn from him and grow from him and has to in order to change permanently or, you know, to change long-term. And then also this other place of him using that strength, being able to enter her world and have compassion for her pain as well, but not flip into I'm a big loser and maybe even buy into the trauma narrative of him being all bad. Yeah, I, I think that's really profound, actually. The emotional part is something we really emphasize in our program because I was, I was kind of emotionally inept for you know the first 20 years of my life. I just didn't get taught yeah. those skills and I had to mm-hmm. learn them. And I think what we found, and I, I know some of my colleagues have said this as well, is you can, you can get the guy free of, of porn addiction, but sometimes he's not watching porn but those emotional deficiencies or 
inabilities that caused the addiction in the first place haven't fully healed. So the spouse is saying, hey, it's so great true. that you're free of porn, mm-hmm. but you're still not giving me the things that I need to feel like I can trust you again. And granted, trust is not restored overnight in these situations anyway. But I think for the guys who are listening, especially, it really does go a long way, not just to get free of porn, but but to develop some of those fundamental skills for healthy relationships and healthy connections. Because you're not just trying to get free of porn when you're married. You're actually trying to rebuild trust. You're trying to rebuild a covenant here. And uh, those emotional skills go a really, really long way. Yeah, absolutely. It's not enough just to sort of be like, hey, I'm a good guy and I'm fine and everybody else thinks I'm fine. And I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> it's not going to yeah. work if you yeah. want to stay in relationship to the person you've wounded who's taken a big risk by staying with you, right? Like yes. that's, I mean, it's not like they have you know, that they're being unreasonable by questioning whether or not it's a smart move to stay connected or put their, put themselves back in your hands. Yeah, not at all. I mean, trust is earned, you know, it's earned over mm-hmm. time. And so I think for women who are in that place and maybe, I don't know, I think sometimes women can put a lot of pressure on themselves to be able to forgive quickly and, you know, even to just to just be able to return things back to normal. Yeah. You're under no obligation to do that. And I think the reality is, and this is maybe the hard part for women that at least I've observed, just in the small percentage of women that I've at least talked to. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't take this, or I take it with a grain of salt. But I, I think the reality is to recover from addiction, there is an inner transformation that takes place. And a lot of women will hold on to what used to be, basically their perception of how things were when life was good, yeah. life was healthy. And they're hoping that, we'll, that life will be back there again someday. But I don't think life ever goes back there. I think there's a new reality that's probably even better. It's going to be a lot more authentic, a lot more healthy on a holistic level. And letting go of that image and being willing to embrace a partner who has now experienced a transformation, he's changing. And that means a new dynamic in the marriage, something to adapt to. That can be actually really uncomfortable. And I think we're all people who we prefer the comfort, we prefer the familiarity that it brings. And yet, I think at the same time, for a couple, to really recover from addiction, you know, from that betrayal and everything that comes with it. Yes, the man has to change and get free of pornography, but in the process, that means you're you're more or less taking on a new marriage, a completely new life, a new dynamic, learning to relate to each other differently. And that's a difficult thing to embrace, but when you do, I think for the women, it opens up their hearts as well to embrace a new reality and to at least start rebuilding that trust so that it's a two-way street because it shouldn't just be the addict who's having to you know, constantly apologize and repent. And he's always, he's always saying, I know I've caused all this pain and I don't deserve any of this. You have to eventually reach this place where it's mutually beneficial. There's a, there's a respect, there's a trust, but of course that is earned with time. But Mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing to sort of have your sights set on as you work ahead and, and try to heal together. Yeah. That, that other piece of it is, I think it's common to sort of just, uh, put, you know, the, the sort of eternal burden on, one person who, you know, injured the relationship to just make everything work long-term. And in some ways it kind of reinforces the powerlessness of the betrayed partner. And, and we just don't want to do that because yeah, again, in most cases, it's, it's women that I'm working with who've been betrayed. They need to learn that, that they have options as well. You know, I've heard, I heard the analogy once that um, a lot of women are afraid, like, you know, if they put their trust back in him or if they accept him as you know, this, this person that, you know, is a good person or maybe learned from him, his mistakes and wants to do better, that she's going to be putting everything back on him. And it's like, no, it's, it's kind of like a bird standing on a branch. And if the branch breaks, you know, you can still fly. It's not like right. you're going to be totally, you know, you're going to hit the ground 
even if you feel like your your wings have been clipped or you, they've been injured, it's not true. Like you, you're still an individual and you absolutely can grow strength and take care of yourself. And so his work of seeing himself clearly and overcoming his own shame and self-views and all these things that we've been talking about, also when it's met with a betrayed partner doing her work, mm. which is, you know, the topic of lots of podcasts that I've done on this topic. So we won't go into all the details of what that looks like. But when those things are combined together, it really does create ideal conditions to rebuild a relationship. But you're right. Having one passive partner and one active partner is not going to be a recipe for success. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. I had a, a coach on my podcast not too long ago. Her name's uh, Jolene Wynn. And she works with women you know, exclusively who have been betrayed. And one of the things she said that I loved, and it, I think it's actually on her website as well, but it's like, basically her goal is to help women heal so much that even if her husband did watch porn again, she would know how to respond in a healthy way. That's right. And I, I love that idea of it. And I think, again, it, it just speaks to the, mutual, the mutuality of recovery. It's uh-huh. just, it's the nature of being in a covenant with another person. Their stuff is your stuff as well. And you have to work right. through it together. Because right. if it's one-sided, then yeah, actually the marriage becomes imbalanced in either direction, positively or negatively. Right. And I think when things are equally going in both directions, in responsibility, taking ownership, control, everything that comes with it, I think that's when, that's when you get the best results. Yeah, I love it. Let's circle back for just as we wrap up here, just about shame. So we know all the ways that, you know, we try and avoid shame, you know, blame, yeah. avoidance, addiction, things like that. But where would somebody start when they're looking at this triple threat of shame, regret, guilt? What's a good starting place besides signing up for your program? Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize well, in, in, in your Deep Clean program, your book, Last Relapse, like you have all this covered there. But just, just briefly, and I definitely would recommend people go check those things out and get involved in, in the work you're doing. But just in terms of really organizing this, where's a good starting place? No, I appreciate that. I, I want to give some practical things because I think that that's probably going to be the most valuable for your listener. So yeah. if we go back to shame, shame has sort of the, the two facets. One is the fundamental belief something's wrong with me. The other is the fear of abandonment, the relational component. So mm-hmm. I think the classic advice around shame, it, it's classic for a reason, but it's really helpful to talk to somebody. And if you are married yeah. and you're struggling... I don't think the first person you talk to has to be your spouse. You do need to talk to your spouse, just to be crystal clear. But what I always recommend as a starting point is find the safest place. What, what, who's the safest person in your life? The person that you know probably isn't going to judge you. Where's that safest place? Go talk to them because that is going to absolve the fear of rejection, the fear of abandonment, the relational part of it. So that's a great starting point. And I think if you've already done that, your next step is to plug into a community. That's why I love that you do groups. Everything that we do at Deep Clean involves a communal element because I think that's what kind of takes that process to the next level of really just combating the relational component of shame. Mm-hmm. On the, the personal side of things, I'd like to give a, a little technique that we, we typically only share to our paid clients, but I think it's going to be really valuable for your audience. And it's called mirror therapy. And mirror therapy is looking at yourself in the eyes in front of a mirror and speaking positive words of affirmation and encouragement over yourself. And I say positive words of affirmation, but what I actually mean is the truth. So identity statements, you know, for us, our philosophy is that you are not an addict. You may have an addiction, you may have been addicted, but as far as the way we see you, you are not an addict. Um, so we, we encourage people to find statements of, I am a loving husband, you know, or I am, I am a conqueror, like I'm going to overcome this. 
saying those statements is one thing. And I'm sure people are familiar with, you know, affirmations and how far those things go. But there's a scripture that says the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. So the idea of standing in front of a mirror, looking yourself in the eyes and saying, I am a conqueror, is that you're not just speaking it into the air, you're speaking it into your soul. And I think that is really, really powerful. And uh, for a lot of people who have struggled with an addiction, the mere thought of looking at yourself in front, or sorry, looking at yourself in the mirror is really uncomfortable. And so I encourage people, just try to look at yourself for even 10 seconds. Get comfortable with the man in the mirror. It goes a really long way to even just regulating your nervous system. Because remember, you've actually conditioned your nervous system to respond to yourself and the way you perceive yourself a certain way. That's why it's so uncomfortable, right? The thought of it. But when you start to, when you can regulate yourself by looking at yourself in the eyes in front of a mirror, it just, it does wonders for your mind. And as you start to speak those words of encouragement, those truths, those Bible-based truths over yourself, over who you are and what's on your life and what you're called to do, man, things really start to change. And that's what we've, we've witnessed is just one of the most powerful, practical ways that somebody can combat shame. I love that. I love that. And I, I, I know as, as you were saying that, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the universal signal for shame is, you know, averting the gaze, right? It's like yes. eyes down, looking away, like we don't right. want to be seen. We cover the face. And so the ability to stand there exposed and having your nothing in between you and you, you're looking straight at your eyes. Yeah, that, that'll be a real, um, you know, a, a real challenge for somebody who's really steeped in shame. But I, I love what you said, even just taking 10 seconds and just making eye contact with yourself before you even say anything and just kind of get comfortable regulating your own, just your own relationship to yourself and then adding those statements. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Powerful. Yeah, yeah it, it goes a long way. It is uncomfortable. And just so people know where I learned this, when I was still addicted, I had a pretty bad relapse after being clean for about a year. And I realized that after a relapse, my thoughts would just go crazy. You're never going to get over this. What's the matter with you? You're better than this. Like they were so bad. And then usually I would slip again, either the same day or the next day. And I I just kind of wondered if I could curb those thoughts that happened right after a relapse, I wonder if I would respond better. Like, I wonder if I could maybe just get back on track more quickly. Right. And that's what I found. Like, it was honestly almost like as soon as I would slip, I would get in front of a mirror, look myself in the eyes and start speaking these truths over myself. And again, it's not going to get you free in of itself, but it was such a good starting point to just mitigating the damage after a relapse and the gap started to get larger and larger between slips after I started to do that. And obviously that was in conjunction with some other work, but yeah, this was formed in the lab, so to speak. Like I learned it real time and now we see that in our clients, it helps a lot. So I really do highly recommend it for your listeners. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so, Sathya, tell, tell us what we can, uh, you know, what you're working on. Tell us what people where they can find you. Um, mm-hmm. I know you have your own podcast as well. Yeah. Tell us what's going on for you. Yeah. There's a few different ways. The best way is probably my podcast is called Unleash the Man Within. We release episodes daily just because when I was struggling, I needed daily encouragement. So we're doing our best to be a daily encouragement in return now. The book is called The Last Relapse. It's available on all major platforms. You can actually get a free download at uh, thelastrelapsebook.com. And the other place that uh, people can connect with us is really in our communities. So that's a, that's a great place. And they can just go to our website, getadeepclean.com and find out more about our programs, our course. I set aside time every week to speak with people who are in need and want to get free. So those are a few different ways people I can plug it. in. 
Thank you. And I'll put links to all those in the show notes, but uh, man, I just sure appreciate just you, your own journey and, and what you're doing to help so many other people. It's just so great to connect with you and feel your spirit and, and your enthusiasm for this work and just your love. Like, it's just amazing. I love it. Oh, thanks, Jeff. And thanks for the work you're doing. I mean, a lot of the guys we work with are married and they need people like you in their life who are giving them the resources and the skills. And uh, personally, I'm a big believer that if we could restore the family unit, which of course is going to start with healthy marriages, we would fix a lot of issues in our society. So I just think what you're doing is so important. And I uh, can't thank you enough, man, for the work you're doing and for having me today. You can learn more about Sathya and the great work that he's doing on his website, sathiasam.com. I'll put links to that and his other resources in the show notes so you can access all of that fantastic information. Thank you, Sathya, for the great work that you're doing and helping so many people overcome pornography. And of course, you can find great resources on my website, fromcrisistoconnection.com. I have online courses to help people rebuild trust. I have the Trust Building Bootcamp, which is a 12-week online course for those who want to rebuild trust in their relationships. It's a self-paced course, and so you can start at any time. And my podcast listeners do get 20% off. You can enter the code PODCAST20 at checkout and receive 20% off the Trust Building Bootcamp. I also have other online courses and other resources on my website and past episodes of the podcast. We've got over 130 episodes that you can listen to. Lots of great content, lots of great guest speakers. Just amazed at the amount of information and support I had one person tell me, man, listening to your, this podcast is like getting free therapy. And I could not agree more. <laughs> there is some great stuff on this podcast. Thankfully, we've been able to interview some incredible people over the years. And did you know that I also write a weekly relationship column? That's right. I have past uh, columns all over my blog, my website. So I answer questions about all kinds of topics. And you can find those there. And also visit me on social media. I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. And I'd love for you to connect with me over there and like and follow anything that I'm doing over there and spread the word, let people know about this podcast and this life-changing information. There are lots of people out there who want help and need help and support and just don't know where to find it. So you can be a light for a lot of these people and give them some direction and point them to some of the fantastic resources that I offer as well as my, my guests. Just want people to know that they have lots of options and they don't have to do this blindly or alone. Once again, thanks for being here every single week. It's so great knowing you're out there listening. I see the numbers. I see the things coming through, the comments and the, the feedback. And it just means the world to me to know that these episodes and this work is making a difference in your life. Thanks again. And I'll catch you guys in the next episode.